Good morning and greetings in Christ's name. Thank you, Brent, for that opening. That was very appropriate, I think. And a psalm for the Sabbath day that was shared at the synagogue, so it was good. Just reminders of who we are and who God is. And this morning, I'd like to take a look at a reminder as well of who God is. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of John. I'd like to read a short passage, the first five verses for a text this morning. I titled this message, it would probably be Behold the Man. It says in John 19, beginning at verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. So, in this depiction of Jesus, Pilate was trying to engender some sympathy for Christ. He was trying to bring some satisfaction to this cruel mob that just seemed to be satisfied with nothing but crucifixion. He knew that Jesus was innocent. So he had Jesus scourged. And I want to talk about that for just a bit. The Jews had a form of whipping that they used, a beating, a scourging, they called it, that was always limited to 40 stripes. The Old Testament limited a beating to 40 stripes. And so they always saved one. So they, they always had the same four score, save one. In other words, take one, give one less, just in case you make a mistake when you're counting and you give the person one too many, that would be a violation of the law. So they always stopped at 39 lashes. <clears throat> that consisted of lashes with a long, supple rod that was usually administered by a paid person who beat the prisoner with 13 lashes on each shoulder and 13 times in the loins. And then they stopped. Paul talks about that. He had, I think, two of those beatings from the Jews. But the Roman scourging was different. That was administered with a small circular piece of wood with several strips of leather attached. At the end of each strip of leather was a piece of bone or metal. As the leather strip, as, excuse me, as the leather strip hit the prisoner on the back, it wrapped around the rib cage, and then as they pulled it back, it would rip a gouge down the person's, uh, the front of the person, all the way down the side. And there was no set number of lashes. The Romans gave as many as they wanted, and the prisoner was watched by an administrator who stopped the beating before the prisoner died. It was often called the Roman halfway death. And in Psalm 22, where the Messianic Psalm, where it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, it says, I may, I may tell all my bones. In other words, I can count my bones by looking at the flesh that's cut apart, I can see my ribs. That's basically what he's saying. So he was beaten, beaten severely. And then they planted a 
crown of thorns on his head. This was made out of a, a plant that was native to Palestine that had really long thorns. And we have thorn trees here. We all know what those thorns are like. If you've ever been poked by one, you know how they are for a long time. They planted this crown of thorns on his head because they were mocking his claim to be a king. And they slammed it down on his head, so it poked into his skull, and he was bleeding everywhere from those that crown of thorns. And you have a cut through the skin on your head, it bleeds quite a bit because there's blood vessels up there. And then there were blows to the face. If you look in Luke 22, where it gives another depiction of the crucifixion, it says in verses 63 and 64, and the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? You know, if you're the Son of God, tell us. You should be able to tell, even though you can't see. So Jesus' face had been beaten, probably fairly severely. Probably black eyes, probably bloodied lips, probably bruises on the cheeks. <clears throat> and... And along with all of that, Jesus had lost a lot of sleep. You look at the scriptural account, he really had no sleep from early Thursday morning to Friday afternoon, Friday morning, just before lunch. And so Jesus had gone all this time without sleep. There was a loss of blood. There was a face that was beaten bloody. And there he is, probably staggering, because later on when he tried to carry his cross, he couldn't fell under the weight of the cross. And so Pilate brings him out and says, Behold the man. Here he is. Here's this man you want crucified. And he was hoping that it would bring some sympathy from the crowd, but it brought none. Because the crowd was hardened and evil. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But very likely led by people, paid instigators, who were getting the crowd riled up and crying for the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was emotionally torn. I mean, you know, when he was, if you look in John earlier in chapter 17 where he's praying in the garden, you can see that concern for his disciples come through. Because he knew he was leaving them. And he knew they were really not in very good spiritual state. And yet he left them knowing that the Holy Spirit would come and bring them completely to himself. But in verses 11 through 15 of John 17, in, in his high priestly prayer, he said this, he said, Now and now am I no more of this world, but these are in the world. So notice he has that concern, I'm leaving, but they're staying. <clears throat> and I come to the Holy Father, keep through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost at the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. So Jesus was really concerned about his disciples. He bore that emotional strain during this time of pain. In chapter 18 of John, 
when they came to get Jesus, he says in verses 7 and 8, Then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. He's trying to protect his disciples. Even in his moment of pain and in the hour of darkness, that's where his thoughts were. So Jesus was carrying an emotional burden. He had been humiliated. The mockery of his divinity, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Herod's court and Pilate's hall, they, they, were, they were making fun of a man who was suffering tremendously. The shame of public nakedness is discouraging because when they beat you, they tore your clothes off. And at the crucifixion, Jewish prisoners were allowed to wear a loincloth. That was one concession that the Romans made. Most of the time, prisoners were crucified completely naked. But the Roman or the Jews were allowed to wear a loincloth because of their religious beliefs, and the Romans granted that as one way of helping keep the, the Jews under under population. But yet, it's like being crucified in your underwear, and so there there was that pain and suffering as well, that emotional. And, then, and remember then the night before in the garden where Jesus wrestled with his desire to avoid the condemnation of sin and the horrible death of the condemned sinner. When he said, Lord, if it be possible, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. I mean, isn't there some other way that this can be done? But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I believe that Satan was wrestling with Jesus. I believe that in that garden, Satan told Jesus that once death claims you, I'm going to be your master. You're going to be my prisoner because I own death. So really, if you think about it, there was a, garden, there was a battle waged in the garden of Eden long before. And that's where man became enslaved. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was another battle waged. This time, the devil lost. But Jesus was the one who bore the burden. And so all of these things were piled on Christ's back, so to speak, as he was brought out and presented, behold the man. You know, most of us, when we are presented in public, we like to look our best. We like to wear our best clothes, Wear some deodorant, take some, you know, wear some breath pressure, do something that helps put your best foot forward. But when the Son of God was presented, he was brought forward at his weakest and his worst, so to speak, physically. Behold the man. Why did God allow that? Well, I think as we go through the scriptures and look together, it makes a lot of sense once you understand what God was doing and why he had Jesus presented in that state, in that extreme state of pain. In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a scripture that we often read when we have communion. Verses 24 through 29. We often read these verses because they're a reminder of why we have communion and what we're doing during that time and how that ties back to the presentation of Christ. Remember, Pilate said, Behold the man. And in our communion service, we're also saying, Behold the man. 
Look at what he says in verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye do eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So that word show in verse 26, in the Greek, that means to proclaim. So as we participate in communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are literally saying by our actions, behold the man. Here's a man who died for me. Here's a man who suffered for me, and because of that, I can live. And that's why Paul was so clear about eating and drinking unworthily. He said that, he's basically saying, I believe, that if you participate in this Last Supper, and you do so out of, simply out of custom, and you have no understanding of the significance of what, are you do, what you're doing, it's better that you not eat or drink. Because this is, is, is meant for you to be proclaiming by your actions, here's the man who died for me. Behold the man. <clears throat> I'd like to think a little bit about some of the perspectives of those who beheld Jesus. And I'd like to kind of lead to the question, what do you see? when you behold the man. Let's think about the religious leaders who were behind the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, the Jewish leaders were the epitome of hypocrisy in these actions. I mean, they were behind all this. They were trying to use the Romans to destroy Jesus. And it even got so bad that this ungodly heathen Pilate was pushing for justice and truth, and the Jews were pushing for injustice and the murder of Jesus. It, they had broken their own laws. I mean, they had, they, they, they had this trial at night, which was for, expressly forbidden by their own law. And they broke their own law to bring Jesus to death because they hated him so. I mean, this was a man who threatened to turn their world upside down. He confronted their self-righteous religious hypocrisy. He called them hypocrites and blind guides. He said, you're like whited sepulchers sepulchers. You're decorated on the outside, but you're full of death on the inside. He showed them who they really were. And nothing makes us madder than that, right? When somebody, tell, when somebody says something really bad about us and we know it's true, that infuriates us. It infuriated them. They should have repented. That was the whole point of the verbal lashing he gave them. But instead they hated him. He gave the people an example that contrasted sharply with the example of the religious leaders. These were supposed to be their teachers and their religious leaders, but the way they lived, compared to the way Jesus lived, drew a stark condemnation of them because this was righteousness next to evil. He broke their little self-made image of the Messiah and who the Messiah would be. They were simply looking for someone to deliver them from the Romans so they could continue in their sins. Jesus brought them salvation from their own sins. 
and they were bitterly envious of him. They couldn't abide his presence. They wanted him dead. They'd broken their own laws to bring him to death. They defiled themselves in their cooperation with Pilate in order to destroy Jesus. And they paid blood money to have Jesus betrayed. So in their minds, they literally defiled themselves by going into Pilate's judgment hall just before the Passover. Although sometimes I wonder if Pilate wasn't more defiled by them than they were by Pilate. They were so evil and hypocritical. But this was their perspective, outright rejection and hatred. And we see that in the world today. There are people who outright reject Jesus. When God says, behold the man, their response is hatred. Have you ever seen some of these people who are so anti-Christian that when any, any picture of Jesus is presented, the response is hatred. Then there was the perspective of the mob. To them, Jesus was merchandise, just another way to make money. Many of them were paid instigators, and some of them were probably temple employees in the pay of the high priest. And this trial was an opportunity for them to profit. They saw his very presence as a challenge. Could they have him crucified? Could they cry out enough to Pilate to accomplish the goals of the high priest? Crucify him. To them, Jesus was just an opportunity to make money an opportunity to triumph. And sometimes we see people today whose perspective on Jesus is just somebody who will give them some benefit. They want him to give them something. They cry out to him when they need something and want something, but that's all he is to them. And then there was the Roman perspective. There was a, a troubled sympathy for Jesus. They, they felt bad. They knew this was a, a man who was innocent and he was being unjustly punished by them. And yet they did it because, why? Because Pilate was a coward. He was afraid to stand for what he knew was true and right. He was unwilling to risk his own fortune for the sake of justice for, a, for an innocent Jew. Jesus was a thorn in their sides. He was always being accused of sedition by the Jews. His trial was a political nightmare for Pilate. Uh, history says that Pilate actually died sometime later, possibly by suicide, because of the guilt he felt. He couldn't shake off this man, Jesus. His trial cost them dearly in terms of time and expense. They were troubled by his divinity. Remember what Pilate said, what is truth? Pilate knew instinctively that this man embodied truth. They were troubled by his innocence. Remember the Roman centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. When the thunder rolled and the earthquake after the crucifixion. So these were people who had a sympathy for Jesus. They knew Jesus was just and right, but they weren't going to follow him because it cost too much. And we see those people today. We have people who... They're sympathetic toward the Christian cause. They're sympathetic toward Jesus. They want to be good people, so to speak, but they're not willing to pay the price that it costs to follow him. And then there was the perspective of the disciples. This was their master, but they had an incomplete understanding and a lack of power at this point in their lives. What did they do when Jesus was crucified? They fled. Oh. Peter followed afar off. He got to see some of the action, but he had just denied Jesus because he wanted to save his own skin. 
Their master and their king of healing was himself broken and hurting. And they didn't really know what to do about that because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Their king, the one who bring them joy and victory, was looking like a beaten criminal. They desperately wanted Jesus back. They wanted him to declare himself the king of the world. But what did they do? They fled in fear. They denied him. They thought it was over until the resurrection occurred. So here we have God presenting his son. You know, when Jesus was born, God proclaimed his coming as well. He said, behold, the baby. And he led the shepherds to the manger. He led the wise men to the house of Jesus, who was probably as much as two years old by that time. He led them all there to see his son in his innocence and in his poverty. He was helpless. And then here he is, helpless again. And I, I just, as I think about this, it, it really spoke to me when I was thinking about this yesterday, how that God presented his son in a state of pain and in a state of helplessness because we are poor and helpless. So he presented someone who understands us and he brought him out beaten and bloody and broken. He brought him when he was a child as innocent and helpless so that we could feel his sympathy for us. It's coming again and this time He's not going to be broken and helpless. He's going to be on fire. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be there for judgment. So the question that came to me as I studied this and thought about this is, who do I see? What's my perspective on Jesus? What does I, when, I, when I behold the man, what do I see? Do I see the supreme sacrifice? Do I understand that the work on Calvary is finished? and that my salvation is complete in Him. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his mercy. What paid that price? That broken man that was presented when Pilate said, Behold the man. A sacrifice that paid for victory over sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-58. This is probably one of the single most exciting passages to me in the New Testament where Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection and then he concludes with these verses and he says in verse 54 so in this corruptible shall I put on incorruption and this mortal shall I put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
So here we have Jesus, the broken man, who was then raised by the resurrection. And because he's raised, we can defy death and sin. We can say, no longer do I fear you, sin. No longer do I fear you, death. Because the victory has been given to me by this man who died for my sins and who was raised again for my justification. And then the challenge in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you feel tired? Sometimes I do. We're in a world that tires us. There's something about living in a world of wickedness that is tiring to the Christian. But here's Paul saying, don't quit. Abound in the work of the Lord. Don't give up. Keep going. Be steadfast because your labor is not in vain. Because this man that Pilate presented as a broken, beaten, humiliated person is now raised as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, our labor is not in vain. He's going to reward us. Do we see the just and holy one? The one spoken of in Acts 2 by Peter. And he talked about the just and the holy one. The one who will give purpose and meaning to your life now and in eternity. I'd like to, for one last scripture here, read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As I read this, I just, I just want to encourage all of us because we are children of God by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And this tells us how God views us. It says, And you hath he quickened. What does that mean? He made us alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, or again, has made us alive, Together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in the good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So this is where we are spiritually because of Christ. And I, I, really, I really needed that reminder. Um, it's, it, it just seems like we're in a place in history where sin and oppression presses in. There's so much here. We were talking about this the other day as a family. The Just the the things that are happening are things that 20 years ago we wouldn't have dreamed would happen, even though the world was very wicked 20 years ago. It's become exceedingly so. So you look forward and you think, well, what are, what's going to happen in the next 20 years? You know, after we move off the scene, what happens to our children and grandchildren? And this is, it weighs down and oppresses us. 
But it need not, because this makes it clear that we are God's children. And we sit in heavenly places as far as God is concerned. And we're going to triumph. We're going to win. We're not going to lose this war. God is going to be there for us to the very end. Why? Because the man is broken at the crucifixion. So, bringing all this together, I'd like to close with a story. Some of you, I know I've heard this story before, but bear with me as I share it. This is a story that was told many years ago, back in the days of when slavery was still legal in the United States, back before the 1860s and the Civil War. There was, there was a case of a particular slave, a big, burly man that they called Big Ben, who had had enough. He wasn't going to work for someone else anymore. And so one day when he was being sold, his master was selling some slaves. There was a man at the auction. There were several men bidding on him. A lot of people wanted him because he was big and burly and he could really work hard. But he kept saying as he stood up in the auction block, he kept calling out, Big Ben won't work. Big Ben won't work. He kept saying that over and over again because he wanted to make sure that the people understood out there that what they were getting, they bought Big Ben, they were going to find somebody who was not going to work. And the bidding went up and up, and finally a gentleman bought him. And he came to collect Big Ben, and Big Ben said, Big Ben won't work. He wanted to make that clear. So the man said, that's okay. He said, he got Big Ben on his buggy with him, and he took off. And they drove some distance, and, and they came up to this house, this cabin and this little barn. And he stopped, and he said, Big Ben, he said, I bought you to set you free. He said, this is your cabin. This is your barn. This is your little farm. He said, you can live here and do whatever you want. He said, you can stay here if you want, but you don't have to. He said, because you are now a free man. And the story is told that Big Ben got off the buggy and he walked up to the, to the cabin and he turned around and he got down on his knees and he said, Master, he said, I want to serve you as long as I live because I love you. So that is what Jesus was showing us. That's what the Father was showing us when he used this heathen man, Pilate, to say, behold the man. This is the man who set you free. And I think our response should be, my response should be, instead of discouragement and frustration, my response should be encouragement. Instead of saying, you know, Big Ben won't work, I should say as Big Ben did, I will serve you the rest of my life because I love you. You set me free. You gave me not just a little cabin in the barn, you gave me a mansion and an abiding place in heaven. You gave me a position with Christ. Therefore, I will serve you. So, in closing, Behold the man. What do you see when you see the broken body of Jesus? What do you see when you think about the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the picture of Jesus. Lord, he was born in poverty, laid in a manger. Lord, he grew up. He never sat in the king's throne here on earth. He wasn't rich. He wasn't powerful. He suffered. He died broken in death. And he was presented, Lord, to the world as, Behold the man. 
We thank you, Father, that the story didn't end there, that the resurrection took place. Jesus was raised from the dead and now sits at your right hand. And because of that, Father, we have been saved. Our sins have been washed away. The death of Christ ensured that. We were justified by the resurrection of Christ and we are invited to sit with him in heavenly places. Praise you, Lord. We thank you for that. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be steadfast. And help us, Father, to continue the work that you've given us to do. Encourage because you're alive. Jesus reigns and we will live forever. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.